You are listening to the DJI Podcast, a space to listen our online events, conversations and seminars, hosted by the Transitional Justice Institute. Hello everyone. On behalf of the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University and the Northern Ireland Human Rights Festival, I welcome you all to this event. In August 2022, the Israeli army broke into and shut down the offices of seven Palestinian human rights and humanitarian groups operating in Ramallah. Adamir Prison Support and Human Rights Association, Al-Haq, the Union of Palestinian Women's Committees, the Union of Agricultural Work Committees, the Bisan Center for Research and Development, the Palestinian chapter of the Geneva-based Defense for Children International, and the Union of Healthcare Workers Committees, and 24 UN-appointed independent human rights experts have condemned these closures as illegal and unacceptable. As director of the TJI, which is committed to advancing transitional goals, including the full enjoyment of all human rights without discrimination, I consider it important that the TJI uses its platform to raise awareness of what is happening to these human rights organizations, which are all committed to advancing similar goals to ours in a different context, of course. I'm very grateful to the Northern Ireland Human Rights Festival for co-sponsoring this event, and I'm delighted to welcome our speakers. Our first speaker is Francesca Albanese. She is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Territory. She's an affiliate scholar at the Institute for the Study of International Migration at Georgetown University and a senior advisor on migration and forced displacement for the think tank Arab Renaissance for Democracy and Development. She's published widely on the legal situation in Israel-Palestine and her latest book, Palestinian Refugees in International Law was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Speaking after her, we will hear from Sahar Francis, who has been the general director of Ramallah-based Adamir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association since 2006. Adamir is a Palestinian NGO providing legal and advocacy support to Palestinian political prisoners in Israeli and Palestinian prisons. Sahar joined the association in 1998, first as a human rights lawyer and then as head of the legal unit was also on the Board of Defense for Children International, the Palestinian section for four years, and also sits on the board for the Union of Agricultural Work Committees. We will then hear from Fanula Nielon, who's the UN Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of human rights and fundamental freedoms while countering terrorism. She is Regents University Professor and Rabina Chair in Law, Public Policy and Society at the University of Minnesota. She current, concurrently holds a chair in law at the Queen's University of Belfast, Northern Ireland. And before she moved to Queen's, she was director of the TJI here at Ulster. We'll then hear from Susan Power, who is head of legal research and advocacy at Al-Haq, Law in the Service of Man. She lectured law for seven years in Griffith College, Cork and Dublin between 2010 and 2017. She's published academic articles in, in the Journal of Conflict and Security Law, the Irish Yearbook of International Law, and the Irish Journal of European Law, writing on issues of occupation law. She is currently co-editor of a forthcoming book for the Brill International Humanitarian Law Series on Prolonged Occupation and International Law, Israel and Palestine. We will then hear from Hassan Javarin, 
who is the founder and general director of Adala. Over the last 25 years, he has litigated scores of landmark constitutional law cases regarding Palestinian citizens of Israel, including representation of the Palestinian leadership in Israel and international humanitarian law cases concerning Palestinians in the 1967 occupied territory before the Israeli Supreme Court. Hassan led the strategy and the legal defense team representing the Palestinian six organizations before the Israeli military authorities. So I welcome all of these wonderful speakers and I welcome you all to this event. And we'll hear now Francesca Albanese. Uh, thank you very much, Shoban, and good morning, everyone. I wish to thank the Transitional Justice Institute of Ulster University for inviting me uh, um, to the Northern Ireland Human Rights Festival. Um, I certainly want to comment on the situation of experience by the six human rights organizations who are not only important service providers uh, for the Palestinian people under occupation, but they are also at the forefront of the battle for international justice and accountability. Um, I will not um, spend time on the on the details of what has happened to them and why on the ground of which uh, on which legal basis it has happened, because other colleagues on the panel are certainly uh, even best suited than, than I am to do that. But as, as I'm the first one to speak and I am the as a, the UN Special Rapporteur on the human rights situation in the occupied Palestinian territory, um, allow me to put things in, in context. Um, since 1967, Palestinians under occupation have uh, woken up under the yoke of foreign domination with most of their rights suspended and without concrete um, horizons and prospects for, for advance, advancement and, and resolution of their, their situation. Today, as I speak, uh, the, the occupied Palestinian territory appears as a microcosm of human rights abuses, where the prevailing climate is of generalized and systemic violence, uh, constituting a coercive environment where most human rights are violated. The systemic targeting and extrajudicial killing of Palestinians by Israeli forces and, and, and settlers um, engaged in destroying their property, attacking, beating, shooting, and terrorized unarmed civilians and their children occurs daily with complete impunity. And in the past months, we have seen a recrudescence of violence uh, and um, which is marked uncharacteristically by heavy loss of Palestinian life. There are over 200 Palestinians who have lost their life th this year, including, and, uh, in addition to uh, about 30, 30 uh, Israelis. Uh, this is not as, uh, as is too often presented an intractable conflict between two parties bo born of irreconcilable uh, and incompatible sense of identity. This is a reality shaped by a profound and protracted injustice where two people, the Israelis and the Palestinians are trapped by an anachronistic settler colonial enterprise, where I often say one is the colonizer and the other is the colonized. And um, since 1967, within this structure, which I've documented, analyzed, and discussed as settler colonial, because engineered to violate and to prevent the realization of the right of self-determination of the Palestinian people from a territorial, economic, political, and cultural point of view, well, this situation has, has translated in 
in the full subjugation of the of the Palestinians, who it's, it's, it's worth reminding are the protected persons under under occupation and the, the many uh, violations they suffer in terms of repression of, of political and civic participation, um, the widespread ar arbitrary arrest and detention, including of children, the draconian restrictions of movement inside and outside the, the, the occupied territory, just to mention a few, um, may to a, num to, to, to a large extent constitute uh, war crimes or crimes against humanity. And they are part and parcel of uh, of a widespread uh, climate of collective punishment imposed over the Palestinian people. In, uh, in this context, this is the context in which the six organizations of, that have been um, designated terrorists um, operate. Um, as a result of the crisis of the Palestinian political establishment, they, as any human rights defender in Palestine, I mean, it is increasingly become the main and, so and sole port of call uh, for the Palestinians under occupation. And um, because of this, they have become an increase, uh, they have increasingly become the target of repression, primarily by the Israelis, but not only. And in fact, many are the violations attributed or attributable to Palestinian authorities. Um, this, the, the organizations are, like many Palestinians, are uh, con uh, continuously under, under control, by, including by mass spyware surveillance used to monitor their activities. And uh, this is also part and parcel of a shrinking space of civil society and humanitarian actors operating in the occupied Palestinian territory. If we look at the designation of this organization as terrorists per se, this is an attempt to further shrink, if not outright ban the space available to, to them and to articulate an, an opposition to the occupation. Uh, something I noted in my report is that because the designated organizations are fully engaged in the ongoing situation of Palestine um, before the ICC, by attacking them, by attacking their work, by this, the, the, the Israel might be committing, um, might be destroying, tampering with, or interfering the, with the collector, collection of evidence of war crimes and crimes against humanity, which is absolutely prohibited under international criminal law and constitute an offense on, in, on its own. So because of the, because of the infringement, of, um, of the, 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 the rights that these organizations have to work as humanitarian and human rights uh, service providers, in the name of freedom of expression, freedom of association and assembly, the recent escalation of attacks seem to want to dismantle and the very what remains of the, of the structure that enables the protection of human rights in the Palestinian, um, in the occupied Palestinian territory. This is part and parcel of uh, the, the policies that have been denounced as apartheid. And I want to, re to recall that silencing a persecuting opposition is part and parcel of implementing apartheid policies, um, according to the, the Convention on the Prevention of the Crime of, of Apartheid. It's all good and positive that many um, states, including European state and the US, have expressed condemnation toward the measure, the draconian measures taken by Israel vis-a-vis uh, -vis these organizations, but this is not enough. It's time to consider uh, appropriate 
legal measures recommended under the UN Charter in order and under the law of state responsibility to bring to an end um, the widespread uh, climate of violence and human rights, international humanitarian law violations against the Palestinian. Only when these conditions will be met, the human the space for human rights in, um, in Palestine will return to flourish. And this is in the interest of both the Palestinians and the Israelis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Francesca, for that uh, clear, very powerful introduction and summary of the issues and for that, that call to go further, that women need to go further. Um, we'll, our next Next is Sahar Francis, who's speaking to us from Ramallah. Thank you and uh, good evening and thanks for this opportunity. And sorry, I'm a bit uh, sick, so my voice. Uh, and Francesca, thanks a lot for this comprehensive introduction because this is really the context how uh, we worked for decades and were attacked by the Israeli uh, um, authorities systematically and by the Israeli right-wing NGOs like NGO Monitor, UK Lawyers for Israel, UN Watch, and all other different groups that since decades, and especially since 2004, after the decision of the ICJ on the wall and the establishment of the PDS campaign by the Palestinian civil society, there was a systematic attack by the Israeli government and the Israeli uh, uh, organizations against the Palestinian civil society because we were trying to find a way to seek accountability. And this is the main important cause behind why they are so keen in silencing us and affecting us. Because as Francesca said, without making justice, without putting an end for the whole system, the whole system in the occupied territories in, and in the 48 areas are a system of colonization and oppression and control over the Palestinians and the use of the military orders and the Israeli law is a tool for the government and the authorities in order to keep this control and to silence us, to criminalize us and to affect our work. The same, like the case of the seven Palestinian NGOs who were illegalized and six of them were designated terror group, is part of uh, or could be an example to reflect about the whole legal system. I wouldn't get into much details about the legal because I know uh, my colleague Hassan will explain about the procedures. What I wanted to highlight as the Israeli authorities used the law in order to illegalize all the Palestinian political parties since 48 by using and continue to implement the British security regulations, the emergency uh, rules, and later they implemented the same security em uh, emergency regulations on the occupied territories in order to justify their policies on the security level to be able to use secret information and administrative measures to illegalize all our political parties, student movements, civil uh, organizations, and so on. This is, was the main tool in, the, in their hand in order to control the whole society. 
So the arrest of the students, of human rights defenders, of journalists, of political activists, of political leaders comes with the same path with the illegalization of the seven Palestinian organizations. It's a continuation. And because they failed to affect our financial resources and to affect our support that we're gaining on the international level, whether from the states, the UN different groups, the civil society organization in the international level, including donors, they tried the campaign for decades. We're mostly attacking our donors and our friends, our supporters. They were claiming and trying to distribute false information that we are associated with terrorism, using the fact that some of our employees were imprisoned and prosecuted in front of these military courts that in our case, Damir is for 30 years advocating against these military courts. And we are claiming that these courts are not a, a place where you can seek justice. They are not implementing the international humanitarian law or the international human rights law standards. They cannot be fair trial procedures. So you cannot rely on the outcomes of these military courts. And still the accusation about against the organizations comes from such cases that they were people that they were sentenced in these military courts, uh, detainees that they were tortured, that their basic rights as detainees were not respected. And without any evidences, they based the allegations against us mainly on secret information. And I would uh, uh, use the time as well to highlight one of the cases of Damir colleague, he's a lawyer from Jerusalem, that he was an ex-prisoner. After his release, after seven years in uh, detention, he continued his law degree and joined Damir. But since then, he's facing continuous harassment and attack against him. For some time, he was re-arrested under administrative detention. Then he was deported, uh, not deported. He was banned from entering the West Bank and forced to go to live inside 48 areas. He was banned travel outside. His wife was banned coming back to the country and she was deported back to France where she was forced to give birth for their two children in France without being able to visit at least once. Since last year, a month, less than month after the designation of the six organizations, he was informed by the interior minister that they will revoke his Jerusalem residency. Because he have a, a, a French citizenship as well, Israel claimed that he should travel to France and he can appeal the decision from France, but he's not allowed to stay. He refused to implement this decision. So he was arrested last March put under administrative detention where they claim that the administrative detention is not related to the revocation of his residency. The administrative detention ended after two time expansion in the 4th of December. On the 30th of November, the interior minister reaffirmed she's about to leave the office in two weeks or so. She reaffirmed the uh, uh, revocation of his residency order. 
the military governor didn't extend the administrative detention and he was facing a threat to be deported immediately. And uh, his lawyer, Ms. Le'at Samuel, managed to delay the session for the review till the 6th yesterday. And yesterday, the court agreed to keep him till the 1st of January till they review the revocation residency and his deportation. And the case of Salah keeps showed in the case of Damir. They claim that we are terrorists because we hire terrorist people and they claim that Salah is a terrorist and vice versa. Because in the case of Salah, they claim that also being working in Damir, this is supporting an, uh, a terrorist organization. This is an example how they manipulate the law, how they misuse the uh, uh, secret information, how they don't respect the international humanitarian law when it comes for the basic rights of the people under occupation. The whole revocation of the residency of Salah is based on the breaking allegiance for the state of Israel. Salah, as a, a, a resident of East Jerusalem, he's a protected person according to the international humanitarian law. He's not supposed to have any allegiance to the occupying state, but still they're using the law in order to deport him. If the case of Salah would succeed in uh, deportation, this is, means a very serious, dangerous threat for tens, if not hundreds of residents from Jerusalem that they would face the same issue of revoking their residency based on breaking allegiance, where this is a total violation for the international law, but this is the de facto policy to evacuate the Palestinians from their city as demolishing houses, as not granting family unification certificates to thousands of families that were working for decades. In our case as organizations, in the uh, August when they raided, actually the main thing that they did stealing equipments, broken furniture for the organizations, stealing files. In the Women Union Committee, they took all the files of the beneficiary women. We are talking about women who face family uh, uh, issues, who face uh, domestic violence. It's a very serious uh, information-wise cases, and God knows how they will use this information in order to pressure these women and to put pressure at least to collaborate with the uh, 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 security authorities. And of course, they sealed the offices doors in order to ban us from going back to our work. But of course, as we decided last year, we continue, we will continue our work with the support, of course, of all the friends around the world, including the special reporters, including the other groups in the UN level, in the uh, uh, organizational level, in the international level, and in the local level, with the support of our people, because we know that we are playing a very essential role in maintaining the resilience of our own people and supporting our people to uh, 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 keep the hope in order to reach one day our self-determination. Thank you. Thank you, Saha, for that very powerful 
summary of um, discussion of what is happening and and for the uh, describing the story of um, Salah and the situation that is uh, facing him and others. Um, thank you very much. We'll move now to hear from Fanula Nielon, who's the UN Special Rapporteur. Hi, everyone. Very glad to be joining you. I'm particularly glad, and thanks to, uh, to TJI, my former home, <laughs> academic home, to be part of this discussion. Um, I want to acknowledge in particular the extraordinary bravery of all of the organizations on the call and all of the individuals whose day-to-day -day work and life um, is a testament to working in the most extreme conditions to defend the most fundamental of rights. And I also want to acknowledge my uh, colleague and friend, Francesca, who, with whom the work we've been doing together as special rapporteurs, you often see us as individuals, but one of the best things about this job is that when you get to work with extraordinary colleagues who share the same passion and commitment to the issues that we're all working on. So my thanks to Francesca. I wanted to really frame this, this discussion today by sort of speaking about some of the global trends that we're seeing in the context of the misuse of counterterrorism against civil society organizations. Then to say something quite specific about what the particularity of the misuse and abuse of counterterrorism in the Israeli-Palestinian context is. And then to talk a little bit about the relationship between counterterrorism and the law of occupation. So let me start by saying a few words about the global misuse of counterterrorism. The acts that we've seen, this unilateral, if you want, choking and extinguishing of Palestinian civil society is not happening in a vacuum. It's happening in the context of a broader tolerance for the abuse of counterterrorism law and practice across the globe. And that tolerance has really has its roots in the post 9-11 context where the United Nations in the days following the establishment, the, 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 the attacks on the Twin Towers, established a number of institutional pathways within the United Nations, including a counterterrorism committee at the, at the Security Council, a special political directorate that supports the counterterrorism committee, UNCTED, and more recently, the establishment of a large-scale Office of Counterterrorism in the UN system <clears throat> as a whole. And what's important about that institutional architecture is that it comes with a set of global norms that allow states to regulate terrorism. But we should all understand there's no globally agreed definition of terrorism. So essentially, since 9-11, states get to call whomever they like a terrorist without consequence. And when states such as Israel use and misuse uh, terrorism, counterterrorism law, they do it in a permissive environment. They do it in an environment where no one ever calls anybody else out for their, for their use of the term terrorism or terrorist. And the result of that is that we have seen a global catastrophe for civil society. We have seen the systemic misuse of counterterrorism across the globe, and it has many of the characteristics that we know from the situation in Palestine. Let me give you some examples that will be familiar, and Sahar has already talked about these. We've seen um, the use of uh, extrajudicial executions. We've seen torture, incommunicado detention, the use of military commissions for crimes allegedly committed by civilian populations, 
the military detention and interrogation of children, the charging and conviction of children for terrorism offences in military commissions, the destruction of private homes as a punishment for terrorism offences, and the transfer of persons outside the occupied territory for terrorism offences. And now, of course, what we've seen in the last couple of months is the crackdown, the exclusion, the annihilation of civil society under the guise of terrorism. And one of the reasons this is so extraordinarily problematic is because it happens in a permissive state, in a, in a permissive context, where globally, including from the Security Council to the UN, support and assistance is given to states who engage in counterterrorism work. So I think understanding this broader backdrop is really important to understanding the scale of the global problem we're facing, of which the Palestinian people and the Palestinian civil society is one extreme example. And it's to that extreme example that I want to turn now, because while I've said that there is this, these global patterns of targeting and abusing civil society from Egypt to Nicaragua, what's been happening in the Palestinian context is unique because nowhere else have we seen the attempt to do an absolute closure on all of civil society in one foul swoop. And so it is that egregious, it's not a picking off of one organization, which would be intolerable and unacceptable under international law, but it is this wholesale rather than retail approach of the Israeli government that has been so deeply problematic and called out by both Francesca's and my mandate and other special rapporteurs. Because the signal that it sends that you can just switch off you can denigrate civil society in an instant by using those words terrorism is profoundly unacceptable. And anyone who knows the work that civil society do, does in, in many places, but particularly in Palestine, civil society is the living, breathing um, part, the best parts of the society. The best of us is always seen in civil society spaces. Civil society is the outlet for people to air their grievances, to have a place to speak, to have a place to say what is happening to them under a situation of intolerable and unacceptable transformative occupation, which has lasted well over a century. So it's not by accident, as uh, Sahar uh, has spoken and then Francesca has said, that civil society is targeted because it is precisely civil society which in Palestine is exercising its fundamental rights protected by international law, the right to speak, the right to assemble, the right to participate in public affairs, the right to legal process. All of these things are protected by international law. And what Israel has done is effectively seek to um, extinguish the right of practice of those fundamental human rights by these um, by, by applying counterterrorism. And um, two things to say about the process that Israel has, has used. The first is that it has relied on this uh, nomenclature of countering terrorism finance as a basis for the shutdown. And it's worth noting that even if we take another legal standard, which is the FATF standard, the FAT Financial Action Task Force, which, by, which regulates in a soft law way, but in a very powerful way, the regulation of terrorism finance, we understand and see that Israel's actions are completely outside the FATF standard. 
And uh, while many of us are focused on the work in the UN, it's also important to understand that there are mechanisms through the FATF to hold Israel accountable for its failure to do what it is required to do, which is to protect civil society under recommendation, recommendation eight of the FATF. Finally, let me just say a couple of things about um, counter the intersection between counterterrorism and occupation law, an issue that I, I addressed in my General Assembly uh, report this year. So everyone, I think, on this call, anyone who has followed uh, Palestine or the issues of occupation over the last couple of decades knows that ending situations of occupation should be the primary goal of peacemaking and a priority of states in the United Nations, given that we know, and we know particularly in Palestine, that accompanying long-term transformative occupation are profound violations of human rights. And one of the things that I have observed in the in my time as special rapporteur and before, and it's particularly relevant to Palestine, is that we have seen that states, particularly Israel, are seeking to push out the law of occupation, its obligations under the Hague and Geneva Conventions, and instead to move that, that regulation into a counterterrorism space. What I have observed is that um, by using a terrorism language, the state is hoping to displace those legal norms. And by doing so, to lean into the tolerance and acceptability for counterterrorism that we see at the global level. What we see in Palestine is that states, specifically Israel, has start, sought to displace the application of the law of occupation by rhetorical and practical reliance on counterterrorism. There's an observable practice in this context of treating any act of violence within the occupied territory as an act of terrorism, rather than working from what I would call first order principles, which is to apply the law of occupation to the territory and then proceeding to address whether if there's an act of terrorism, it occurs within that legal framework. It is also clear that the state has worked hard to extend its domestic counterterrorism law into the occupied territory. And doing that alone is a prima facie breach of its international humanitarian law obligations. And it fundamentally undermines the spirit and substance of the Geneva Conventions. It bears reminding that in a situation of occupation, such as Palestine, the belligerent occupier has the overwhelming duty to safeguard and protect, as Sahar said, protected persons, and to ensure that the status of the territory is not compromised by unilateral acts that would prevent the peaceful resolution of the underlying armed conflict. And I'm deeply concerned in the context of Palestine that what we are seeing is the opportunistic and highly retrogressive use of counterterrorism law as a means to further sub subdue and humiliate the protected population and essentially, as many Palestinians know, to make life unlivable for them in every molecule of daily life through the establishment and defense of the Israeli counterterrorism architecture. So this displacement of occupation law has to end, and we have to hold the state accountable to its misuse of counterterrorism, most flagrantly demonstrated by the um, annihilation, the, 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 the squashing of these six extraordinary human rights organizations. Thank you very much. Thank you, Fanula, for that very powerful insight into the misuse of uh, anti-terrorism laws and how they're being used to, to crush, um, as she said, making life intolerable 
uh, in Palestine and for Palestinian human rights groups. At the our oh, I should say that um, Fanula is in New York at the moment for UN meetings and uh, she will probably have to leave early. Um, so if she has disappeared, I'd just uh, like to thank her very much for her very powerful contribution. I'm really pleased she was able to speak and speak so clearly. Um, but um, I hope she'll be able to stay for a while, but just- I'm here to <laughs> um, Our next speaker is Susan Power from AHAC. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you for organizing this uh, event. Um, and our particular thanks uh, as AHAC as well to the special rapporteurs, um, Albanese and, uh, and Fiona Neil-Aylon as well. Thank you for your, your powerful interventions. Um, and I just uh, want to first state how important this focus is for our organizations. Um, it's, it's existential for us, uh, you know, like we're, we're being attacked to be closed down so that we will stop our monitoring and documentation um, of Israel's uh, violations of, of human rights and international humanitarian law. And we're being particularly targeted in us as Al-Haq um, and also I think Adamir um, for their work and DCI Palestine in particular for work that we're doing with the International Criminal Court and submitting that evidence to the International Criminal Court. Um, so the, this highlight and this focus is really important today. Um, and as um, uh, Special Rapporteur Niela and said um, the whole issue underpinning this is Israel's uh, counter-terrorism law of 2016 uh, and we were designated as terror organizations under this counter-terrorism law and this counter-terrorism law was always intended um, to shut down the work of charities um, and NGOs and um, there was at a time at the drafting of the law that in a legal memo um, it discussed this targeting of NGOs, and at the time it was targeting NGOs that were linked to Hamas, not for any material acts of terrorism, um, but on ideological grounds. And this really should have at the time set up kind of red flares of alarm that there could be very serious misuse of this legislation. Um, and this legislation is also subject to the unilateral decision-making of the Minister of Defence. And I think it's no surprise that this year in April, the UN Human Rights Committee concluded that the counter-terrorism legislation um, breached the ICCPR um, on grounds of legal necessity, proportionality, um, and legal certainty. Uh, but we've seen in the case with our organisations um, that it really was based on the, this unilateral decision-making of the Minister of Defence. Um, and the Minister of Defence used secret evidence and confidential materials. And after the designations, we decided to challenge this um, through the uh, Israeli military commander. So we'd also been outlawed um, under the counter-terrorism legislation as terror organizations. And a few weeks later, we were um, outlawed as unlawful associations under military order, and that became applicable in the occupied Palestinian territory. So we did not um, directly challenge through Israel's committee system under the counter-terrorism legislation um, because we don't recognize the competence of the Israeli courts and authorities over the occupied Palestinian territory. 
because Israel is not the legitimate sovereign. Um, however, we were happy to challenge it under the military order, under the military commander, um, as the military commander has de facto authority um, over the territory under the, under the Hague regulations. Um, but even then, even, even when we requested to uh, receive the evidence and uh, examine the charges, um, we had a letter from the Israeli military commander uh, in January of this year that the evidence was... Susan, you're breaking up. Um, um, and would not be released. So a very, very serious accusation. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? You were breaking up. You're coming oh. back now, but you were breaking up. Oh, thank you. Um, so apologies for that. Um, so this reliance on secret evidence has been held, upheld by the highest levels um, at the Israeli Supreme Court. So there's precedent going back um, on using secret evidence um, for a number of years. And this was one of the reasons why even as an organization as Al-Haq, we decided to not engage with the Israeli courts um, for a number of years because of this reliance um, on secret evidence. Um, but the counterterrorism legislation goes even further again um, than just targeting um, the designated organizations. So even other organizations that work with us um, and provide services to our organizations can also be targeted with criminal penalties. And this can also incur a number of years um, of prison sentences. We've already seen this going into full effect um, during our appeal against the military order. So our lawyer, um, Michael Spard and his legal team um, received a threatening letter um, for providing us with legal services. Um, and the letter said that um, he was providing legal services to uh, terror organizations. And the letter which came from the Israeli authorities drew attention to provisions of the counter-terrorism law concerning legal avenues to transactions in terrorist property. Um, and as this was being raised with the Attorney General after uh, July 14th, um, and there was a process ongoing, in the meantime, there was a decision made um, that our organizations had lost the appeal. And then a couple of hours later, our organization was raided um, and uh, we were officially closed under a military order. So in terms of the designation, our six organizations um, have now still stand as having a permanent designation um, as terror organizations under the terror uh, under the counterterrorism law and the military order. So the immediate effects um, of this are potential rests uh, for doing the work um, and potential uh, potential detentions. And we've already. Um, three days after the designations, the general director of our organization, Shawan Jabarin, um, and the general director um, of the Defense for International, uh, Defense for Children International Palestine, 
they were both summoned um, by the Shabak and they were threatened um, with arrests and detention if our organizations um, continued to operate. And we've also seen since the designations a targeting on the movement um, of the general directors from other organizations. Um, so the general director of the ZAN um, was denied exit um, at Ben-Gurion when he was to travel to the US. In July, Sahar Francis, also on this call, was denied her travel to the World Social Forum um, in Mexico. And in October, the general director of the Union of Palestinians Women's Committees was also denied exit through Allen Bay. And this was all this was all exit um, from the occupied territory to attend human rights um, obligations and commitments abroad. So it's already having a chilling effect on our ability to carry out our work. Um, our, in terms of the raids on our offices, our offices were raided in the early hours um, of August uh, 18th, um, and the military uh, made an incursion into Ramallah with military jeeps, and the soldiers um, closed down our organizations, welded um, iron grids uh, onto the doors, um, and in some of the organizations, they also took away property. Um, this, had a, this has had a very intimidating effect on, on our staff. Um, it was a month before our offices reopened again and we worked, worked remotely. And we only then opened the offices after a lot of intervention um, between the uh, various diplomatic representative offices on the ground here and also with the Palestinian Authority when we, when we felt that we were, had assurances to continue. Um, but also some organizations such as the Palestinian um, Women's Committees, they never reopened and they still have not reopened their organization. There was property that was taken from their organization, computers, printers, even office furniture. And there was also uh, material and, um, and property taken from the Union of Agricultural uh, Workers Committees as well. So that has had uh, some impacts on those organizations. Um, just in terms of the, the, the level of fear and intimidation across the organizations, um, it has had a chilling effect on the work. Many um, employees don't want to be um, recognized or identified as working in the organizations. So you have some who are doing advocacy work who will, but behind the scenes, others do not want to be identified uh, because they know the consequences of being identified. And we've seen this firsthand with other organizations, such as the health workers committees. Um, they were um, they were designated as, as unlawful associations under the under the uh, military order, and their accounting staff who were working in their organization um, were detained and interrogated um, by the Israeli. It's very distorted, Susan. I think we have to move on to Hassan. I'm really sorry. Maybe we can come back uh, in the Q&A and, and, well, before the Q&A and, and you could finish. Um, I'm really sorry about that. Is that okay? Um, Hass, um, well, I'm very sorry, everybody, that um, the, the Wi-Fi has gone very distorted and it's not possible to hear the end of Susan Power's presentation, but hopefully we'll be able to go back to her after we've heard from Hassan. Hassan, 
Hi. Hi. Uh, good evening. Hello. Hi. I am sorry also to start uh, after Susan in this way. <laughs> I hope that she succeeded to uh, uh, to complete uh, her talk. Um, uh, I was supposed, I am supposed to speak about the legal aspect, but all of the participants are legalistic and they spoke about the legal aspect in detail. So I wish to answer one question, how is a law succeed uh, to uh, criminalize the Palestinian people under the Terror Act framework, uh, despite the fact that uh, it's very, very uh, difficult to put uh, a people under this framework, but I want to see, uh, to examine how Israel law succeeded to make that, how Israel law can put any Palestinian, almost any Palestinian a person in jail uh, or to indict him uh, under the framework of uh, terror act. In other words, how Israel law succeed to criminalize a people. Now, the, uh, the law in Israel go back to 1948. It's for it's the ordinance of preventing uh, terrorism of 1948. This ordinance gave power to the government to declare about any group as terrorist organization. This group based mm -hmm. on this ordinance won't have the right of hearing. They won't have the right of uh, uh, due process and they won't have the right to challenge uh, this declaration, meaning the declaration is administrative, is by the Israeli government, and the Israeli government also is not, uh, is entitled not to give details why they declare an organization or a group as a terror organization. Now this ordinance, uh, through by this ordinance, Israel government declared that all the Palestinians fractions that belong to the BLO and not belong to the BLO like Hamas and others are terror organizations. Uh, and today legally, all the Palestinian fractions that they part of the Palestinian government of the Palestinian Authority of uh, on the West Bank or part of the Palestinian government in Gaza, like Hamas and others, all of them based on Israel law are terror organizations. Now, in, this also includes Fatah, Fatah that has uh, the peace process with Israel, Oslo Accords with Israel, and they had long negotiation with Israel. Legally and officially, still Fatah considered as a terror organization. Now, it doesn't mean that Israel will activate this declaration all the time against any person who belongs to Fatah, but they will choose any political moment to activate, meaning that the rule of law in the in the case of Fatah is so vague, and it depends on uh, uh, decisions of administrative power when uh, to use it. Now, since all most of the Palestinian activists, most of the Palestinians officials, they work within the Palestinian Authority or in the government of uh, Hamas in Gaza, or activists within those political parties. So they all of them consider as belong to terror organizations. Now, the Israeli Supreme Court 
reject the distinction to make distinction between uh, civilian act and military act. If I belong to Hamas, I am member of Hamas, and I am engaging only and only in social activities in Gaza. Israel can indict me as a terrorist person and put me in jail after the indictment and so on and so on. And I won't have the defense that I belong, I am doing only social activities. Israeli Supreme Court said that also social activities is supporting a terror organization. And this is why we cannot give exemption to this kind of activities. What about if I am a teacher in the education system in Gaza and I don't belong to Hamas? Also in this case, Israel can indict me as supporting terror organization because I belong to the uh, Israeli and uh, to the education system that Hamas managed in Gaza. In other words, by this you can criminalize most of the Palestinian people. Now, what about the evidences? Israel, if they indict me as support terror organization, they must bring direct evidence against me and to give me uh, before the court to defend myself that I don't support terror organization. So if they have direct, uh, direct uh, evidence, they can bring and indict me. What if they have no evidence to show them? They can put me under administrative detention. And put me under the administrative detention, there is no cross-examination. There is no evidences to be introduced. The evidence are secret. So by this, all the time, Israel authority has the authority to criminalize Palestinian person or to put him in jail without criminalizing him through criminal uh, process. Now, what about the six organizations? Now, in 2016, Israel enact a new law Counter-Terror Act, modern one, give right of hearing. And uh, this law, yes, give the power of the Minister of Defense to declare organization as terror organization, but the minister must give reasoning, give uh, the power to the organization to challenge within a committee that put uh, through this law uh, to challenge that decision and to introduce evidence in order to challenge this evidence. Meaning this law of 2016 is more modern than the ordinance of uh, 1914. But first of all, we have to know every organization that already declared based on 1948, based on the new law is also a terror organization without starting a new process meaning what already declared as terror continue to be as a terror. Now, what's the law said in which cases uh, the Minister of Defense can declare that uh, Sahar is a director of terror organization? There are two ways. If Sahar is and her organization and Damir engaging directly in terror acts, violence, 
it's they have the authority, the minister, to declare that Sahar organization is terror organization. What if Sahar is not engaging in illegality? What if Sahar is doing all what she is doing is all illegal? She has never been engaged in violence. No one of her staff was indicted on any violence act. Is still possibility for the minister to declare that Sahar organization is terror organization? The answer is yes. Why? Because the law said there are two ways. One, if Sahar organization engaged directly, and as we said, and the second, if Sahar organization not engaged, but support indirectly, support indirectly the goals of any terror organization, Sahara is terrorist organization. Meaning if Sahar is anti-occupation and work against the occupation day, but all the terrorist Palestinian organization, Fatah, PFLB, Hamas, that all of them against occupation, so Sahar easily could be uh, uh, found that she support the goals indirectly, support the goals of those terror organizations. This, the, the second track emphasized that the support is not only directly, is indirectly. And this law clarified clearly that despite the fact that all the actions of Sahar could be legal, she can find herself as belong to a terror organization because indirectly she support the goals of other organizations. What's that mean for us now? Indirectly support, meaning only if she is politically against Israel authority, she can found herself under the framework of uh, the terror, the terror act of 2016. In fact, maybe one can say that uh, the ordinance of 1948, despite the fact that he doesn't give any uh, right to challenge uh, the declaration, maybe it somehow was better than the new modern law because uh, it wasn't easy all the time for Israel government to declare any group as uh, organization not to give them the right of hearing. But this law, the modern law, gave this power and by this we are, this is why we are wondering why those six organizations that every one of us knows them, we know their staff, we know their directors, and we know that their acts are peaceful acts, and some of them are intellectuals and uh, transparent, and despite that, they are legally hitting terrorist organizations. Why? Because the law gives power to declare political activities as a terror uh, action. Now, I said that there is right of hearing after that. After the declaration, there is possibility to challenge, but how to challenge it and where? The law established committee 
that the committee members will be put by Israeli security authority, headed by former judges. And this uh, uh, committee uh, will be allowed and entitled and authorized to hear uh, the appeal against the declaration. Uh, and it will hear it after the minister already uh, declared. But also this committee is allowed to decide that some of the evidence uh, are secret evidence. But in any way, all of the meetings of the committee are closed meetings. So this is why also we face the issue of due process. When we challenge before the military uh, commander that we want to know what's the uh, charges and give us details, the answer was that all of those belong to secret evidence. The only thing that we can give you is that those organizations supported the FLB, uh, but we cannot give any other material except that. So in this way, we have no power to challenge uh, uh, this decision, and there is no due process. And uh, also, the problem that uh, we face that if we raise questions, they are allowed not to answer. For example, we said if our organizations support uh, terror organizations, so at least show us what, which kind of activities that they did that belong to that. Show us in their budgets where there is a problem in their budget. And we ask many questions, but also those questions, they were not answered. So I will be short. And this is what I want to say and to explain this aspect, how Israel law succeeded to criminalize the Palestinian uh, people, to criminalize their political uh, activities. And I will stop here for questions. Thank you very much, Hassan. It's very disturbing. Thank you. Um, Susan got cut off because of the Wi-Fi going um, strange. So maybe you'll like to come back and see if you can finish. Thank you so much. Uh, let me know if it's going bad again. I tried to change to a different um, to a different Wi-Fi. So my apologies about this. Uh, it's one of the it's one of the casualties of uh, of, of working out of the occupied Palestinian territory. Um, what we've had uh, just in relation to some of the uh, the risks and the, the impacts um, on our staff since the designations, um, our field workers in particular, um, who are at the, the cold face, have been um, very fearful um, when conducting their work. They used to wear the jackets with the Al-Haq logo on the back of them and have their, their Al-Haq documentation with them. And now they no longer um, wear these or carry their documentation because of the risks um, involved. Um, and also in particular, our, um, our employees who are from Jerusalem are particularly worried about being exposed in any way. Um, and as uh, we've already heard from Sahar Francis, um, there is now a risk, there, a very real risk of um, people being considered um, as breaching allegiance to Israel and having their Jerusalem residencies revoked. Um, and Salah Murray, 
Tamuri, who works for Ajmer, has had his residency revoked um, only three days ago. So this will have, I think, a knock-on effect, and we will possibly see more of this happening. So this is obviously an act of forcible transfer into war crime as well. Um, but these are things that people are, are, are quite fearful of. Um, and I suppose one of the main implications with the designations and what's really behind it is to close our organizations so we cannot continue doing our work. And the main target of this is financial. So it's to close down the to close down the financial institutions to us so that we don't receive money from donors. Um, and because of this, we immediately started working, trying to open up an organization um, outside of um, outside of Palestine as well, because there's a very real risk that soon we will see the whole banking system closed down to us. Already, there's been some of a chilling effect with this um, and the local banks here have been unwilling to process payments coming into us um, in US dollars or Israeli shekels. And this is because of the fear of slap suits in other countries. There had previously been um, a case taken against the Arab Bank in the United States. And I think uh, the banks are very aware of potential massive lawsuits against them outside of Palestine. And um, so this has had a very real impact on our work as well, because the, um, the currency um, fluctuation everything is coming through euro now and when that's um when the flu there's fluctuation between the currency and um, with the different uh, when it's converted from US dollars um, and Israeli shekels uh, back into euros so these are the kind of smaller things behind the scenes that um that that do affect that do affect our work um and we're expecting there's always lulls in the situation so something big happens and then there's a lull so we're in a lull now and we're expecting the next big thing to happen will possibly be the closing of the, the banking system to us. Um, and in the meantime, we've been the subject of smears by various organizations, including NGO Monitor and in um, the Netherlands, the Center for Information and Documentation um, posted a, a number of slanderous and libelous um, articles about us on their website. So we've taken legal action against them and they've been they've now removed three of those um, three of those articles. And those articles had said that we had um, extensive ties to Palestinian terror groups and that we were on various terrorist lists, including the PFLP. Um, so these are very serious allegations. And this is the kind of knock-on effect that we have to try and um, protect ourselves against and the organization against. Um, but really, these designations are about um, dismantling Palestinian civil society. And they really are a dangerous and repressive measure. So they're designed to quash human rights investigations, monitoring and oversight um, of the governing authorities in the occupied Palestinian territory. And there's really widespread and I think generational consequences for the protected Palestinian civilian population um, if our organizations are shut down. So we'd really ask that um, third states intervene um, to end these designations and really to see them as inhumane acts of an aggressive expansionist annexationist apartheid regime, which is wielding the full military apparatus of an unstrained authority. 
So we would have a number of key recommendations for third states in particular, um, and it is to call on Israel really to urgently and immediately rescind the designations um, which label our organizations as terrorist and also to rescind the military order, as these are violating freedoms of opinion, expression and association, um, but they also amount to acts of apartheid, uh, which are prosecutable under the Rome Statute. Um, we'd also ask for states to support and increase their funding to the organizations and to engage with their financial institutions in their home states and um, to ensure the transfer of funds to our organizations. And this will become even more important um, in the coming months. Um, and then for um, citizens on the ground and especially EU citizens, um, we'd ask that all EU citizens sign up to the European Citizens Initiative. And this European Citizens Initiative um, prohibits the import of settlement goods and services into the EU. And um, what we want is our main calls, um, our main human rights calls to, to keep going forward and to keep being acted on. And in particular, one of our main calls is that Israel is recognized as an apartheid state and that that apartheid regime is dismantled. And these designations are designations which are one inhumane act of apartheid. And there are many, many other acts of apartheid over the last 70 years, but we need to see the dismantling of this regime and the rescinding of the discriminatory and racist laws which are up upholding this regime. And we really as well want to thank you for the opportunity to present today um, and also to really stress um, the seriousness of these designations um, and what it means. It means the complete silencing of Palestinian society as Israel continues its aggressive um, expansion of its state while it forcibly removes Palestinians from their homes, takes their lands and replaces them with Israeli Jewish settlers. And this is just one, this is one point in that process where Israel is now silencing those who are calling out these crimes. And we need everyone's help to ensure that we have the, the resilience um, to continue our work. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. I'm so, so glad that you, we managed to get you back with your Wi-Fi because such a very powerful uh, description of what is happening um, to human rights organizations, uh, to the individuals feeling fear and no longer wanting to identify as working with organizations, but also the shutting down through the financial system, repressing um, the activities, the ability for, your organ for the organizations to work and for your very clear uh, suggestions as to what states can do and what European citizens can do. So thank you very much. And thank you very much, all of you, for your very powerful contributions. Um, there are a couple of questions in the chat. Uh, one of them is from Saul. Uh, he has two related questions, I think. Um, and so I, I will read out the questions and those of you who want to answer could I think you all have control over the mic now, so you can answer. Um, Saul asks, he, he would like to know what is the effect of these measures that we've been discussing on civil society bringing judicial review cases before the HCJ, given that your organizations have been highly active in this process. In particular, com please comment on how the HCJ has accepted jurisdiction in respect of Palestinians from the occupied Palestinian territories. And he has a, a, a little bit more about related to that. Um, 
he asks, is the HCJ judicial review process available to challenge the declarations that have been uh, made regarding the, the organizations that we've been discussing today? Or is appeal only to a committee established by the 2016 law? And how does jurisdiction work in these circumstances? Um, so that's uh, that Saul is asking about that. He, he further asks um, what your views are in the context of continued HCJ jurisdiction for Palestinian cases. Um, so those three are from Saul on a related issue. And then Mohammed asks, um, how can we help and be supported from outside Palestine? And I know Susan said something there about the European Citizens Initiative. So if I put those questions to the panel, um, and, and if you need me to reread them, um, please let me know. But um, whoever would like to, to, uh, to have a go at answering. I will answer the legal aspect of Saul. Of course, the question of Saul need uh, a seminar. <laughs> you, need, you need a class speak about that, but I will say shortly, Israeli Supreme Court it has the authority uh, to hear any case against any uh, branch, uh, official branch, or including the army. This why, and the Minister of Defense, this why uh, we have the right to submit a petition before Israeli Supreme Court to challenge the decision of the committee the ministerial uh, committee, and we have the right to challenge uh, uh, any uh, other final decision of the army. However, the problem with the Israel Supreme Court that also uh, the, they follow the uh, procedure before the committee, meaning that they adopt the concept of secret evidence widely and uh, there is no cross-examination before Israeli Supreme Court. And Israeli Supreme Court doesn't hear all the evidence uh, regularly, but they can sit with the Israeli intelligentsia and the Shabak separately and hear their opinion without allowing the lawyer to hear and to know the details about the case. Uh, in fact, uh, all of the cases before Israeli Supreme Court are similar to cases of administrative detention, meaning the lawyers, they have the right to argue any argument that they wish. However, they don't have the authority to have cross-examination and to be exposed to evidence, and they don't have the right to ask the core, even the core of the evidence that complicate their clients. This is why uh, it's, there are very, very, very few cases that succeeded before the Israel Supreme Court in general. And those cases succeeded because a problem in the procedure, not on the substance. Like we don't know about case that the Israeli authorities say about a person that he uh, create threat to Israeli security and the Supreme Court has different conclusion in the substance. Uh, so uh, this is why uh, the NGOs decided, the six NGOs decided not to address the Israel Supreme Court because, in fact, they know what's the scope of this process, they know what's the consequences of that, and they don't want to be engaged in something that they know in advance that they will be failed. Also, politically, 
they don't want uh, uh, to give Israel the opportunity to be seen as giving stage for lawyers to appear before Israeli Supreme Court and to be seen as giving them a due process when those lawyers has no any ability to challenge in substance the decisions itself. Thank you. Thank you, Hassan. Um, the question there from Mohammed, um, how can we help and be supportive from outside Palestine? Um, anyone to, I, Susan um, already said that we could sign up to the European Citizens Initiative, but if there's anything else anyone would like to contribute. Sah. I think there is also a space for activists to keep the pressure in their own states like, I mean, contacting their parliamentarians, their foreign uh, ministry offices, and their governments, and requesting uh, uh, that they really keep the pressure on Israel in order to cancel uh, the designation and these orders. And also, in general, to echo Susan uh, uh, request as well, on all the question of the uh, whole situation in Palestine, I think that uh, uh, all what the PDS movement, the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign is calling for is very important because it's totally connected. All the kind of the tools that we would have under this campaign to seek accountability, whether versus states by the sanctions, or divestment versus the uh, uh, corporations that they are complicit would be very important and very needed. Thank you, Sahar. And Francesca, I think you also wanted to comment. Thank you. Um, yeah, um, uh, again, um, I will add on what my friends and colleagues said before, um, by recalling the importance of, um, of the broader context of an occupation which operates outside what is permitted by international law, these should be scrutinized. Uh, I invoke on the application of universal standards in their integrity and objectivity. It's not about asking for a special treatment of the Palestinians, of the Palestinians under occupation, but it's important that the same rules that the international community has, uh, has developed and they should apply to everyone are not uh, held back for the, for the Palestinians because this is exactly what is happening right now. Thank you. Thank you, Francesca. Um, Thank you. Yes. I'd also just yeah add a recommendation just for um I know like for for states like the United Kingdom that has a permanent seat um on the Security Council and of course Ireland has a seat on the Security Council as well um that they really push forward to in the interest interests of maintaining international peace and security and push forward to re to recognizing and um, uh, the right of self-determination of the Palestinian people and bringing the illegal situation to an end. We know now that the occupation um, is an illegal occupation. That occupation needs to be brought to an end. The apartheid needs to be dismantled and we need the Security Council to intervene too in the interests of maintaining international peace and security and for to bring the, the, the illegal situation to an end. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Um, this webinar is shortly coming to an end. Um, 
uh, I think I've addressed all the, the questions in the chat. So um, my, my own work is not on Palestine, but I have been looking at the impact of police violence in Brazil on the right to health, in particular, the right to mental health. And listening to you all speaking, it occurs to me that the impact on the right to, to health in general and mental health on everybody in Palestine must be severe. It must be, the, Susan spoke of people being afraid, intimidated, no longer wanting to be associated with the organizations that they work with. And then that there are other activists who are willing to be associated, but the, that means that the pressure on them as, uh, as vocal active human rights defenders, they're taking on a burden uh, for the whole community, which means that presumably they, they feel that stress and they can't take a break from it because uh, it has to be done and they're the ones doing it. So I'm, uh, I, I'm just throwing it partly as a comment, but also um, a lot of the discussion has been about bringing about uh, the end of uh, apartheid and the end of uh, occupation, which are core, of course, and, and bringing legal cases. But I'm wondering also if there is a way of linking this into um, the rights to the UN bodies on, say, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health. I think Tlaleg Mofakeng did join in the statements uh, condemning what has happened to the human rights organizations, but looking at the broader responsibilities of the impact of economic and social and cultural rights. Um, I just throw that out if anyone has any comment on that. Okay. Um, is there, uh, is there, we have a few minutes, is there anyone would like to make a closing uh, comment before I say thank you to you all? Yes, Saha. <laughs> thank you again uh, for this opportunity because I think it's very, very important to keep raising the awareness about this issue of the shrinking space against the Palestinian civil society, especially the sex organizations, mm. because as Susan described it, it's very important, it's very serious, it's very dangerous. And if it will pass and if Israel will succeed to really shut us down and silence us, it means lots of things will come and we have to stop it. Thank you, Saha. Yeah, I just want to add, and thank you as well for the, uh, I think we're, we're mulling over this, the, the recommendation to think more broadly about this in relation to the right to health aspects. And I know definitely within, like we're so, we're so concerned with firefighting um, that a lot of the times the, the, the mental health issues um, get left by the wayside. And this is definitely something we, we need to consider both like just for ourselves and more broadly as well, those impacts. And of course, there's layers of impacts here. There's generational trauma, you know, and there's people coming into the office um, who are, are witness to, to horrendous acts and whose um, family members have been um, subjected to, to horrendous treatment, you know, and there's layers and layers of trauma that people bring with them to work and then continue their work and continue it with, with such professionalism. Um, and now we're under intense pressure um, with the potential closing of our organization um, and the other organizations as well. And this is really this is really a turning point. And even like a couple of days ago, there was um, a newspaper article running by an incoming minister with the new Israeli government. And he said that the human rights organizations 
posed um, an existential threat to, to Israel. And it's because of our work on apartheid. It's because of our work on recognizing that the situation on the ground is one of apartheid and an apartheid state whose the, which the laws, discriminatory laws have to be dismantled. Um, and also because of our work at the International Criminal Court in holding perpetrators um, of atrocity crimes to justice. And of course, it is the policymakers, it is those kind of key figures who potentially will be prosecuted at the International Court. And it's because of this that our voices um, are being silenced and our organizations being closed down. But this is only the first part of it. This will be, have be a domino effect right across Palestinian society. It'll be our organizations and then other organiza organizations afterwards. And um, really what we're trying to stop is this massive effect on shrinking the space to talk on Palestine and shrinking that space to hold Israel to account. So we really need um, all the support that we can get and we need a continued spotlight on this. Um, and for our organizations, it is existential. Um, and we really do thank you for, for your work on this and, and for, for, bringing our, for bringing our voice to this arena as well. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. I, I can see uh, Hassan, but I can't hear him. No, no. <laughs> I am uh, satisfied by the questions <laughs> and everything that should be said, already said. And I want to thank you. And I hope that we finish because I have another meeting. <laughs> thank you, Hassan. Um, thank you all. Um, Thank you very much. Um, it's I, I admire the work you all do, and uh, and I respect the stress that you were all under. Um, thank you very much for speaking at this meeting. Um, I hope we can all offer whatever support we can uh, to to advance your causes. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank and thank you. you. Thank you.